0: Hello and welcome to this Clinical Skills Podcast. In this episode we're going to be focusing on the cardiovascular examination and there's a lot to get through so we'll waste no time in getting started. Establishing a cardiovascular diagnosis is an integrated process and you should not depend on any one isolated finding, rather you should seek a constellation of signs that support one of your differential diagnoses identified in your history. To illustrate this I want to give you an example. Consider a 75 year old gentleman who presents to you with exertional dyspnea. The differential initially is quite wide but through your history taking you identify he had no cough or wheeze, he has never smoked, is not overweight and before this episode his breathing has caused him no problems. You're considering a cardiac diagnosis. On examination you find a slow rising low volume pulse with a heaving left ventricular cardiac impulse associated with a narrow pulse pressure and these findings on their own are as important as eliciting the murmur and any associated heart sounds. You're already considering a, the, the diagnosis of aortic stenosis and when you listen to the precordium, you're looking for a high-pitched ejection systolic murmur that radiates to the crotids and this is associated with a soft or absent second heart sound. So as you can see there are a whole host of features that should alert you to the most likely diagnosis You should aim to build up a catalogue of evidence to support your suspicions rather than just relying or worrying about one particular feature. In this podcast we're going to take a closer look at the cardiovascular examination and we're going to focus on the format and how to perform the examination and the major clinical signs you should be aware of. So first we'll go through the schema. We're going to split this into three and I want to discuss what you do before you reach the precordium what to do when you're looking at the chest and what to do thereafter. Before you get to the precordium we'll start with the end of bed inspection. We'll start with the nails and the hands, look at the nails then the hands, we'll look at the pulses, the radial pulse the brachial pulse, we'll look at the neck veins go up to the carotid pulse, look at the face the eyes, the mouth and then we reach the precordium. So at the precordium we want to inspect the precordium, palpate, percuss, auscultate and perform any dynamic manoeuvres. From there on you move after the precordium you want to listen to the lung bases. you want to examine the sacrum for any pitting oedema, examine the abdomen, feel for the peripheral pulses and examine the lower limbs. So here's a reminder on how to get started. Before you approach to examine any patient, you should wash your hands with soap and water or use an alcohol gel. You want to quickly eyeball the patient and decide whether they're well or unwell, and if they're unwell, whether you need to act on this immediately. We then go to our ice mnemonic, which reminds of things we need to do to start the examination, we need to introduce ourselves, gain consent for the examination, and explain what we're doing and the purpose of the examination the help mnemonic reminds us to get adequate exposure lighting and positioning of the patient and then we'll conduct our end of bed observations and the mnemonic ABC will help us to remind us what to do and split it into appearance, behaviour and connections. So let's start the end of bed examination in order to make some general observations about the appearance of the patient you would have already decided whether you think they're well or unwell and then move on to have a looking at their body habitus. Obesity is associated with heart disease as is type 2 diabetes mellitus which is more common in the obese patient. A large neck may be associated with obstructive sleep apnea which again in itself is an independent risk factor for ischemic heart disease. Tight fitting clothing may be a suggestion of hypothyroidism and conversely a thin patient you may consider the diagnosis of hyperthyroidism and these patients can suffer high output cardiac failure and arrhythmias next consider the colour of the patient the blue dusky appearance of cyanosis may be present in those with pulmonary artery hypertension or congenital cyanotic heart disease or you may see hyperpigmentation such as that occurs with hemochromatosis or bronze diabetes And this is characterised by iron deposition in the tissues and this includes the myocardium and can cause a very stiff left ventricle Uh, this is so called restrictive cardiomyopathy Addison's disease is also associated with hyperpigmentation and these patients present with a labile blood pressure the antiarrhythmic drug amiodarone uh, has with it as a side effect a photosensitive rash that appears as a slate grey appearance on those areas exposed to UV light acanthosis nigricans is associated with type 1 diabetes next have a look to see if there are any obvious scars and on the medial side of the leg you may see scars from a uh, saphenous vein graft harvesting you may look for the median stenotomy scar on the precordium Uh, you also should look in the preptal regions for any scars from any devices such as pacemakers and up in the neck for any evidence of a carotid and arterectomy. And from the end of the bed, try and identify any characteristic features. Patients with Cushing syndrome are often described as having a moon-like face, and these patients suffer from hypertension. Mitral facies is present in mitral stenosis, and you may also have a look at the patient for any other syndromes like Down syndrome, which is associated with congenital malformations, particularly ventricular septal defects or atrial septal defects, you may also have a look at their height and if, they've got a, if they're very tall individuals with a very long arm span this may lead you to think along the lines of Marfan syndrome. But also think about any signs that you see in those diseases that convey an added risk for heart disease like amputations in diabetes or any arteriovenous fistula in the arm suggesting end stage renal disease as these patients have a 10 to 20 fold increase in cardiac events. Have a look at the lower limbs for any signs of peripheral vascular disease again you're looking for amputations or any ulcers and also look for any muscle wasting that may suggest a previous cerebrovascular accident. Having a look for these two features may give you a clue as to the burden of atherosclerotic disease in these patients and patients with lots of complications of atherosclerosis are termed arteriopaths. Have a look in the lower limbs also for any peripheral edema and also look for any vasculitic rashes as vasculitis can be a cause of heart attacks, heart failure and pericarditis. From the end of the bed also go on to look at their behaviour. Try and assess their level of consciousness as a poor cardiac output in perhaps a bradyarrhythmia or tachyarrhythmia may reduce the level of consciousness and have a look to see if the patient looks anxious. Anxiety in itself can be a cause of tachycardia and there are lots of things that can cause tachyarrhythmias that also cause anxiety for example drugs in the young like alcohol and cocaine also palpitations themselves can cause anxiety and when patients are suffering pain this may also make them very anxious and will not help any tachyarrhythmia. Look to see if the patient any pain, if they are any respiratory distress or they feel very short of breath and also observe their position in the bed if they're lying on a stack of pillows this may suggest orthopnea and remember that the pain in pericarditis is positional and patients usually prefer to sit forward in the bed rather than lying flat. Then we'll move on to make some observations about the patients connections and we'll split this into two. We'll look at things around the bed and things we might look at are GTN spray pumps, any oxygen, inhalers, walking aids or packets of cigarettes and also we'll look at things connected to the patient. Comment on whether they have any intravenous access or any IV fluids running and comment on their monitoring. They may have three lead cardiac monitoring, for example, or pulse oximetry. They may have a central line inserted and this may be being monitored. They may also have an arterial line and that may be being monitored too. There are lots of things that can be put into syringe drivers with patients with cardiology such as ionotropes, morphine, glycerol trinitrate, heparin, diuretics and even antiarrhythmics such as amiodarone. Have a look to see if there's a defibrillator nearby. Also try to observe to see if there are any pacing boxes around the bedside and this could be a sign of any temporary transvenous pacing then have a look at their lines as well as looking at the monitor to see if whether these lines are being monitored you should look to see if they're presence and they may have a central venous catheter and this could be inserted in the internal jugular, subclavian or the femoral vein and also to see if they've got any arterial lines and these are most commonly put in the radial artery. Next we'll move on to examining the patient and we'll start with the hands particularly the nails have a look to see if there's any signs of clubbing and clubbing has many causes, Uh, congenital cyanotic heart disease is one of them and clubbing is a loss of angle in the nail bed and it's often boggy and you can also elicit the Shamroth window sign by placing the two nails of the first fingers together and if you have loss in the, the window that's usually present there this will suggest clubbing. A blue discoloration in the nails indicates a poor cardiac output and this is termed peripheral cyanosis you can also test the capillary refill time, and this is a test of perfusion. So the way to do this is to hold the hand at the level of the heart and press on the nail bed for at least 5 seconds. You then release, and the time to reperfusion, i.e. the time it takes for the pallor to disappear, should be less than 2 seconds. And any prolongation of this time could represent hypoperfusion for any re- any reason, or it could represent vasospasm such as in Reynolds Phenomenon. Have a look in the nails for any tar staining and also look to see if there are any visible pulsations you might get in aortic regurgitation and where this is present is called quickney's sign. Next examine the nails for any trophic changes such as koilonychia, which can be present in iron deficiency anemia. Anemias can cause breathlessness and if severe enough can cause high output cardiac failure and in those with significant coronary artery disease they can precipitate a myocardial infarction. Those lines are transverse furrows and these represent temporary arrest of nail growth and can occur in any serious condition but they might occur post rheumatic fever or myocardial infarction and may occur after an episode of heart failure. In hyperthyroidism the nail changes associated with this are onycholysis and thyroid acupuncture you may should also examine for any splinter haemorrhages now these are longitudinal hemorrhagic streaks and are seen in subacute affective endocarditis although they can be present in other conditions such as rheumatoid disease or any vasculitis or glomerulophritis and there may even be a consequence of trauma such as gardening and at this point I want to go through the other signs of endocarditis that you may find. Osler's nodes are tender nodules of the finger pulps Janeway lesions are painless purple palmar macules and I've put them in bold tendon painless because they're often very difficult to remember and they are thought to be due to deposition of immune complexes. Splinter haemorrhages as we've discussed can be present in endocarditis and also if you think or are suspecting endocarditis you should examine the retinophera roth spot which is due to retinal haemorrhage. Then we'll move on to the hands proper and here you should assess their temperature. Cool peripheries may be associated with hypoperfusion and this could be for any reason such as a poor cardiac output or excessive vasospasm or even a peripheral arterial embolus. If a patient is very sweaty this could indicate excessive vagal tone and this can happen in vasovagal episodes but it can also happen in an inferior myocardial infarction or even poor left ventricular function with obstructive lesions like aortic stenosis. Examine for any tremor and tremor can be caused by drugs and they can be illicit drugs such as amphetamines and cocaine or even prescription drugs such as salbutamol or the diet pills subutramine or can be present in alcohol withdrawal such as lyrin tremens. Tremor may also be there where there's thyrotoxicosis. Have a look for any arachnodactyly, which is associated with Marfan syndrome, and any polydactyly, and this can happen in any various congenital cardiac malformations, but particularly an atrial septal defect. Have a look for any xanthomata, and this is deposition of cholesterol-rich deposits. Tendon xanthomata is a characteristic feature of type 2 familial hypercholesterolemia. On the other hand, palmar xanthomata and tuberoctive xanthoma usually happens in type 3 familial hyperlipidemia and this can happen on the knees and the elbows. Examine for any hypermobility in the joints and this may alert you to uh, connective tissue disease such as Marfan syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So then we'll move up from the hands to the wrist where we examine for the radial pulse and here's a diagram of the anterior surface of the forearm with the lateral side at the top of the page and the medial side at the bottom and the radial artery can be found on the lateral side of the forearm whilst the ulnar artery can be found on the medial side. You find the radial artery by first finding the tendon of flexor carpi radialis and this is the first tendon from the lateral side of the wrist from the styloid process you find this tendon and slightly lateral to at this, at the wrist and you'll find the radial artery it's good practice not to use your thumb as you may make mistake your, the pulse in your own thumb for the pulse you're trying to feel and this is especially pertinent where there's a weak pulse at the periphery so what to examine the radial pulse for well the presence of a good radial pulse usually indicates a systolic blood pressure of greater than 90 millimetres of mercury. This may be absent where you have hypotension below this level. An absent radial pulse may also be seen in aortic dissection, peripheral arterial embolus, has been described in tachyceus arteritis and may be caused by trauma such as post cardiac catheterisation through the radial artery. Next you want to look at the rate of the radial pulse and just make some general observations as to whether this is fast, normal or slow. We measure this rate in beats per minute and you can count the rate during a 15 second period and times this by 4. By counting over a longer period you can further increase your accuracy although in practice a rough estimate is all that's needed. Bradyarrhythmus we class where the heart rate is less than 60 beats per minute and tachyarrhythmus where the heart rate is greater than 100. Next focus on the rhythm of the pulsation and this could be regular or irregular. A regular rhythm doesn't necessarily mean sinus rhythm. You cannot tell without an ECG but it could be sinus rhythm, could also be a junctional rhythm or idioventricular rhythm and although the rate should give you a clue you cannot really tell. Even an atrial arrhythmia such as atrial flutter can have a high degree of block, be regular and produce a heart rate of 75 beats per minute, or if it has a low block, it can produce a tachyarrhythmia. So you cannot really tell without an ECG, you can just comment on whether it's regular or irregular. If it's irregular, you can further subclassify this into regularly irregular, and what I mean by this is that the irregularity occurs with a specific pattern that recurs. An regularly irregular rhythm could be sinus arrhythmia where the heart rate quickens with an inspiration, it could be due to regular ectopics or even the wenky back phenomenon a type of heart block. An irregularly irregular pulse suggests atrial fibrillation although you'll want an ECG. Next examine for a collapsing pulse, this is also known as a water hammer or Corrigan's pulse and is associated with aortic regurgitation. It's really important before you do this to ask the patient if it's ok for you to lift their arm whether they have any pain in their arm or shoulder. And what you do is you feel for the radial pulse, you also put the flat of your hand over the muscular part of the patient's forearm and lift their arm vertically above the level of the heart. You should feel a tapping impulse if the sign's positive through the muscular part of the forearm and this is as the column of blood rushes back towards the heart through the regurgitant aortic valve. Next you want to check the left and right radial pulses simultaneously and assess for any symmetry. If there's radial radial delay this can be associated with an aortic arch aneurysm, an aortic dissection or any subclavian stenosis. Next you should fill the radial and the femoral artery on the same side together to see if there's any radial femoral delay. This is not often done on the ward or in clinic unless particularly suspected and it's a hallmark of co or narrowing of the aorta. Next we'll move to the upper arm where we'll be assessing the brachial pulse and looking at the blood pressure. So here's the brachial artery down the middle of the screen and this can be found medial to the biceps tendon. To make it easier for yourself you can flex the elbow backwards and forwards, find the tendon and then with the elbow extended once again feel one or two centimetres lateral to this and you should feel the good strong pulse of the brachial artery and blood pressure to do this properly you need appropriate size cuff otherwise you may produce an erroneous result the standard cuff size is twelve and a half centimetres although patients with a larger circumference arm will need a larger cuff if the cuff is too small for the patient your blood pressure reading will be too high and conversely if the cuff is too loose your blood pressure reading will be too low. It's always best to perform an initial test, so with the cuff around and well fitted around the upper arm, around 3cm above the antecubital fossa and with the arm approximately at the level of the heart, pump up the cuff whilst feeling the radial pulse and keep inflating until the radial pulse disappears, note the pressure at which this occurs and this occlusion pressure is an estimate to the systolic pressure and should give you a guide as how far to pump the cuff up when you take the blood pressure reading proper. At this point deflate the cuff and then reinflate the cuff once more with the diaphragm of your stethoscope over the brachial artery and pump this cuff up to at least 20mm of mercury above the pressure taken to occlude the radial artery and then deflate the cuff very slowly at a rate of two to five millimetres mercury whilst listening with your stethoscope over the brachial artery and you're listening for the Korotkoff sounds the Korotkoff one sound is a sound heard with each pulse and this correlates with the systolic pressure you should keep deflating the cuff until you hear the Korotkoff five and that's disappearance of this sound and that corresponds with the diastolic pressure however the Korotkoff four is a muffling and shouldn't be used because it overestimates the diastolic pressure but in the very young who lack a Korotkov 5 you can use the Korotkov 4 sound. You should take blood pressure on both sides and note the difference between the left and the right. A significant difference may be present in aortic aneurysms and aortic dissection also in subclavian stenosis or coarctation. So what else do we want to know about the blood pressure well we want to know the absolute values the systolic and the diastolic pressure hypertension is defined as a systolic pressure greater than 140 millimeters of mercury and a diastolic pressure of greater than 90 millimeters of mercury we also want to know the mean arterial pressure and the mean arterial pressure can be calculated by using this formula the systolic minus the diastolic divided by 3 Plus the diastolic pressure. The systolic minus the diastolic is also known as the pulse pressure. A mean arterial pressure of greater than sixty millimeters of mercury is thought to be enough to maintain end organ perfusion. However, this may be inadequate in some circumstances. So the pulse pressure, which is the systolic minus the diastolic, and this may be narrower in aortic stenosis and hypovolemic states, and may be wide in aortic regurgitation and sepsis. Pulsus paradoxus is a drop of more than 15mm of mercury on inspiration and this can be seen in left ventricular compressive states such as cardiac tamponade, constricted pericarditis and can be seen in severe asthma where there is impaired venous return. You should also examine for any postural drop in blood pressure and you should ask the patient from a sitting position to stand and then you will want to take their blood pressure every minute or so for the next few minutes. And a drop in 20mm of systolic or 10mm of mercury in diastolic indicates a postural drop. Next we'll move up to examine the neck veins. There's lots of information you can gain from the neck veins. And you want to know the height. And measuring the height can give you a reflection of right atrial pressure. And hence right heart function. And you can assess the height of the internal jugular vein. And if that's not visible you can assess the height of the external jugular vein you also want to know the waveform of the internal jugular vein and this is called the jugular venous pressure so here's a diagram to illustrate the anatomy of the neck veins. First we'll get our bony reference which is the clavicle and the clavicle bone runs from the sternoclavicular joint to the cranioclavicular joint and attaching to it is the sternocleidomastoid muscle which has two heads, the sternocleidomastoid runs from the mastoid, the sternal head runs down and attaches to the sternum whilst the clavicular head attaches to the medial third of the clavicle. The external jugular vein runs over the sternocleidomastoid muscle whilst underneath it runs the internal jugular vein, the inferior portion of which can be found in between the heads of the sternocleidomastoid muscle. Lying next to the internal jugular vein is the common carotid artery where you'll be feeling for a carotid pulse and this runs in the carotid sheath along with the vagus nerve. So here's how to examine the height of the jugular vein's pressure. So the patient should be lying at an angle of 30 to 45 degrees to the horizontal and this should be in a good light. The patient should have their head relaxed on the bed with the sternocleidomastoid muscle relaxed the head should be turned slightly away from you to the left and if you can try and direct the light across the neck as this will aid in visualising the neck veins you should always look for the JVP on both sides if you if you can't see it on the right as kinking of the jugular vein or pressure from the anominate artery or indeed thrombosis can mislead you the height of the jugular venous pressure is measured vertically from the sternal angle and the sternal angle is the junction of the second rib with the sternum. So here's the height of the JVP where you'll be measuring and this is measured from the level of the sternal angle. The height's measured in centimetres and the upper limit of normal is four to five centimetres. Now most clinicians don't carry a ruler and visual estimates are notoriously inaccurate. So the pressure can be read uh, or estimated by knowing the width of your own fingers If you know the width of your own fingers you can rest these on the sternal angle and you can peek over the top of your fingers uh, to the top of the point of the jugular venous pressure. If the pressure is low or you want to exaggerate it, lowering the patient in the bed can make the JVP more obvious and if the pressure is high it may be necessary to sit the patient upright to see the top of the jugular venous pressure. So here are some tips on distinguishing venous from arterial pulsations arterial pulsations are palpable whereas the venous pulsations are not arterial pulsations cannot easily be occluded with light pressure where venous pulsations can arterial pulsations have one pulsation per cardiac cycle where the JVP has a biphasic waveform arterial pulsations are not affected by any changes in abdominal pressure where venous are they're not affected by respiration they're not affected by posture. The jugular venous pressure on the other hand falls during inspiration due to negative intrathoracic pressure and the JVP increases with abdominal pressure and this can be seen with a cough or any other valsalva manoeuvre. Now I just want to talk about a sign that's often not elicited correctly and this is the abdominal jugular reflux test and if this test is positive this is a sign of cardiac failure Now what you do is you press over firmly over the mid abdomen and the right upper quadrant and you press for at least 10 seconds and whilst doing this you observe the jugular venous pressure. In normal subjects the jugular venous pressure remains constant or temporarily rises for a heartbeat or two before returning to the normal level and this negative result would be indicated by a lack of swelling in the jugular vein. The manoeuvre of pressing on the mid abdomen increases venous return which in the failing heart unlike the normal heart cannot eject and this results in a rise in jugular venous pressure. So a positive result is defined as either a sustained rise in the jugular venous pressure of at least 4 cm or more for greater than 15 seconds of pressure or when you release the pressure a fall of 4 cm or more. So here is the jugular venous pressure waveform and we'll go through the different waves in health and disease and this is not something that you'll be able to sketch out on clinical examination but you may well see it if you've got central venous pressure monitoring. So the A wave represents atrial contraction and this happens during diastole of the ventricles and it is caused by pushing a column of blood up the superior vena cava. Then we have the C wave and this is not normally visible but is a notch in the X descent due to closure of the tricuspid valve. The X descent is produced during ventricular systole and this is caused by downward movement of the heart during the systole and causes an atrial stretch and hence a drop in the pressure in the veins. The V wave is caused by passive filling against a closed tricuspid valve and this fills up until a peak. And then the tricuspid valve opens and this causes the wide descent. And this, when the valve opens, it's a passive movement of blood from the right atrium to the right ventricle. So here are some pathological features of the jugular venous pressure. Absence of A waves happens when there is atrial fibrillation and if you remember an A wave was due to atrial contraction. So in fibrillation there's no contraction, therefore no A wave. Giant A waves, on the other hand, are caused where there is tricuspid stenosis, so a very uh, high pressure in the right atrium as the right atrium is unable to eject blood through the tricuspid valve, and you'll see that uh, as a reflection of blood being pushed up into the neck veins. Similarly, canon A waves are caused by atrial contraction against a clode tricuspid valve, and this can occur in complete heart block where it occurs, in, occurs intermittently, usually. Giant V waves are caused by tricuspid regurgitation and these are due to a merger of the A and V waves. Steep S- X descents are seen in com- where there's a compressed right atrium and this can be due to constricted pericarditis or tamponade. and atrial finia occurs only when the base of the heart descends during systole. Rapid Y descents are uh, seen in tricuspid regurgitation and um, when there's a large volume of blood in the right atrium and a very high flow across the tricuspid valve the wide descent, which as we remember is uh, caused by opening of the tricuspid valve so if there's very rapid flow of blood across this valve you'll see a very rapid wide ascent as this blood rushes out um, but where there is very slow flow across the tricuspid valve you'll see slow wide ascents and this can happen due to tricuspid stenosis now we'll move on to the carotid pulse, which can be found postolateral to the larynx, and you should only really feel for one carotid pulse from, at a time from your side. If you feel both at the same time, the patient may faint, and if you feel it from the opposite side to the side you're examining on, then it can look sometimes like you're trying to strangle the patient. And with the carotid pulse, here is where you want to assess the volume of the pulse and also the waveform. So the carotid pulse waveform, this can be slow rising and this is seen in outflow obstruction most commonly aortic stenosis or it can be collapsing and this is seen in aortic regurgitation but can also be present in any large extra cardiac shunt such as an arteriovenous fistula a patent ductus arteriosus and can be seen in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It can also be seen where there is a high cardiac output in anaemia and any other causes of uh, increased cardiac output. A bisphorans pulse is a double impulse and and this can be caused by a mixed aortic valve disease, so mixed aortic stenosis and regurgitation. Pulsus alternans is alternating strong and weak cardiac impulse and this can be found in severe left ventricular failure. A Jerky pulse can be seen in hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy and pulsus paradoxus where there's a weaker pulse on inspiration and remember we define that as greater than 15 millimeters of mercury in the blood pressure on inspiration. So next we'll go on to examine the face and we want to look at the shape uh, to see if there are any defining features whether there's any dysmorphia such as Down syndrome, Noonan syndrome or Williams syndrome which are all uh, congenital diseases that are associated with cardiac disease you may also see the moon face of Cushing's syndrome as we've discussed earlier Um, then you want to look at the colour of the patient and whether they look cyanose which may indicate congenital cyanotic heart disease have a look at any other features. do they have a malar rash that may be associated with lupus or mitral stenosis where it's termed mitral facies and also have a look to see if they have a large neck size as this conveys a risk of um, obstructive sleep apnea which is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Also look generally at the face for any pallor, xanthalesma or jaundice, but we'll look at this closer when we examine the eyes. Moving on to the eyes then, we want to look around the eyes and we want to look around the eyes for any corneal arcus or arcus senalis and this is an opaque ring in the corneal margin and can be a sign of hypercholesterolemia when it occurs in the young or it can just occur in the elderly population cholesterol deposits may be deposited elsewhere in the body and xanthalesma is a yellow macule seen in certain types of hypercholesterolemia around the eyes and you should also look in the conjunctiva for pallor and you only really need to look in one conjunctiva because if there's pallor in one there should be pallor in both if this is due to anemia Have a look in the eye uh, for any bobbing or or a subluxated lens that is seen in Marfan syndrome. You should also look for any signs of thyroid dysfunction and eye disease is a big topic which we won't go through here. But needless to say you should look for any periorbital edema, which is associated with hypothyroidism. And hypothyroidism can be associated with bradycardia and heart block exophthalmos occurs in hypothyroidism, you can also get some lid lag and hypothyroidism, sorry hyperthyroidism is a cause of a tachyarrhythmia. Then we'll go on to looking in the eyes and we look at the sclera and blue sclera can be associated with connective tissue diseases and also look in the sclera for jaundice. Jaundice is most frequently associated with an abdominal examination but it's relevant here because jaundice is a sign of hemolysis this could allude you to an anemia which can cause cardiac problems but in addition valvular disease itself can be a cause of hemolysis then you want to look in the eyes and a fundoscopic examination you'll be able to see any evidence of hypertension if there is any you can also look for any evidence of diabetes and you can also examine Rothspot which was associated with endocarditis then we want to look in the mouth. We want to look around the mouth for any angular stomatitis that you might get in B12 deficiency. And also look in the mouth. A high arch palate is associated with Marfan syndrome. Also look at the dental hygiene because poor dental hygiene uh, is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. You may also see the beefy red sore tongue that you get with B12 deficiency and, as we said before, anemias are important to watch out for. So that completes all the things we need to examine before we reach the precordium. Now we move down from the mouth to the chest itself. And it's useful here to remember our HELP mnemonic to make sure that we have adequate exposure, lighting, and got the patient in a good position, 30 to 45 degrees to the horizontal. And we're going to be looking for any scars in a closer manner than we did at the end of the bed and again look for the median stenotomy scar also look for the left lateral thoracotomy scar that could be used for a mini coronary bypass graft also look for any scars associated with devices I should say here though that as surgical techniques change so are the scars so you may see a scar at the apex and this could indicate a transcutaneous aortic valve implantation look for any visible pulsations in the chest Look in the pectoral regions for any implantable devices such as pacemakers or um, ICDs. Also look for any chest deformity as a severe chest deformity can cause pulmonary artery hypertension. Then we look at palpation. We want to palpate the cardiac impulse and there are two things we want to know about this, its position and that's termed the apex beat and we also want to feel for its character. The cardiac impulse is best performed sitting at 45 degrees start by locating the apex and this is the most infralateral point where the cardiac impulse is felt and this gives you a guide to cardiac size. The normal apex beat is found in the fifth intercostal space in the midclavicular line and the midclavicular line is the midpoint of the clavicle bone and this clavicle bone remember runs from the sternoclavicular joint to the acromioclavicular joint. So you should start with the flat of the hand to try and locate roughly where the apex beat is and then you should try and pinpoint this with one or two fingers and this would be the apex beat, the most infralateral point where the cardiac impulse is felt and note down where you feel this in relation to the intercostal space and whether it's in the, mid, uh, the midclavicular line, anterior axillary line or mid-axillary line. If you cannot feel a cardiac impulse this may be due to obesity or emphysema or even a pericardial effusion. You can try sitting the patient forward and feeling. But bear in mind that patients uh, it's not often seen but they do have dextrocardia where the heart is on the opposite side of the body so if you really can't feel a cardiac impulse try to look on the right hand side as well. So next you should feel for the character of the ha- uh, with the flat of your hand and we'll go through this on the next slide you should also feel um, with the flat of your hand on the left side of the sternum and the right side of the sternum for any heaves and this is caused by enlargement of the chamber on that side so if a left heave is what you're feeling this could represent left ventricular hypertrophy and any right ventricular heaves represent right ventricular hypertrophy thrills are palpable murmurs and some of the thrills you may feel are due to a tight aortic stenosis or ventricular septal defect. So let's go through some of the cardiac impulse associations that you should be feeling for when you feel for the character of the pulse. A hyperdynamic or thrusting apex beat is seen in volume overload and this could be due to many reasons where the left ventricular uh, volume is stressed. So this could be in aortic regurge where you've got blood flowing back from the aorta into the left ventricle, could be due to mitral regurgitation a patent ductus arteriosus or ventricular septal defect. A sustained or heaving left ventricular impulse is seen in pressure overload and causes of pressure overload include left ventricular hypertrophy, hypertension, aortic stenosis or any cause of outflow obstruction. A tapping cardiac impulse is seen with mobile mitral stenosis and this tapping is a palpable first heart sound. What I mean by mobile mitral stenosis is that the valve leaflets are able to move and they then create this loud first heart sound. In immobile mitral stenosis, the valve leaflets do not move and you may not get a loud heart sound at all. A double or jerky cardiac impulse is seen in hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy or where there's severe dyskinesia. This could be due to a left ventricular aneurysm. A displaced apex beat can be seen in cardiomyopathy and this could be dilated cardiomyopathy or ischemic cardiomyopathy and you should try and feel for a pericardial knock and this is due to constrictive pericarditis. Percussion of the precordium is rarely done but it can be useful to percuss out the heart border where you think it may be enlarged. So here's the big thing in cardiovascular examination oscillation of the precordium this is sometimes thought to be the most important part of the examination but it should be kept in perspective. It's not only or even the most important step in cardiovascular diagnosis. Examination of the JVP, peripheral pulses, palpation of the cardiac impulse and measurement of the blood pressure are also vitally important. Many experts can disagree on the characteristic of murmurs and this is because there are sometimes multiple and often complex pathologies and you should look towards the echocardiogram for characterisation of these lesions. Anyone with a murmur or abnormal heart sound should undergo echocardiography and this is also useful for your learning where you hear a murmur try to look at the echo report afterwards. So when you listen to the chest you should use the bell for lower pitch sounds and this is with a light pressure to avoid turning the bell into a diaphragm and you should use the diaphragm to listen for higher pitch sounds. You should listen in all the four areas for the heart sounds and the murmurs. So where do you listen? We're going to go through here the anatomical locations of the valves, but this is not where we listen. and We'll go through why we listen where we listen later, but this is where the pulmonary valve is located, aortic valve, the mitral valve or bicuspid, and the tricuspid valve so in practice we listen to those areas of the precordium where the valve sounds radiate to and here's where you should listen for the sound of the mitral valve and this is in the fifth intercostal space in the midclavicular line so that's at the cardiac apex the aortic area is at the second intercostal space at the right sternal edge the pulmonary area is in the second intercostal space in the left sternal edge and the tricuspid area is in the fifth intercostal space at the left sternal edge so the lower left sternal edge. So you should listen at the apex with the bell and then switch to the diaphragm and listen to the other areas with the diaphragm. You should listen for the heart sounds first and concentrate on the normal and then pathological heart sounds and identify the heart sounds by their timing with the occurrence of systole and you can check this by feeling for the carotid pulse. If it's difficult to feel a carotid you can also try and feel for a subclavian pulse below the clavicle and pulsation of the artery occurs as near as makes no difference with the closure of the mitral valve and the event that produces the first heart sound. Then you should go on to listen for murmurs and, how these, and try to note down how these murmurs relate to the cardiac heart sounds. At this point I should refer you to two previous Podmedics podcasts the first on heart sounds and the second on murmurs these can be found on the cardiology section of the website so my preferred method is to listen first at the apex with the bell and then position the patient with their left arm above their head and their body tilted slightly to the left in this position I listen to the axilla you should then move back to the apex and listen with the diaphragm of your stethoscope Next, move over and listen to the lower left sternal edge, and then move superiorly to the second intercostal space at the left sternal edge, the pulmonary area. Move across to the aortic area, and that's this at uh, the uh, second intercostal space at the right sternal edge, and then move up and listen over the crotid arteries. Ask the patient to take a deep breath in, and exhale, and then hold their breath while you listen to one side. This may be difficult for the patient to hold their breath so you should only attempt to listen over one artery at a time. The final step is to listen over the left sternal edge with the patient sat up in expiration and this is the best manoeuvre to elicit the blowing murmur of aortic regurgitation. So in these next slides I want to illustrate why we listen where we listen. So here is the mitral valve that's outlined and if you can imagine blood flowing through the mitral valve the sound would radiate to the 5th intercostal space in the midclavicular line and that's where the apex, so the sound and blood is rushing through towards the apex so that's where we're going to listen to any sounds of a stenotic murmur the aortic valve the second heart sound or A2, the aortic component of that will radiate to the aortic area which is in the second intercostal space at the right sternal edge. A murmur of aortic stenosis will radiate in this direction however if blood is flowing in the opposite direction then the sound is best heard in the opposite direction and that's why we listen at the lower left sternal edge for aortic regurgitation. The pulmonary valve, here it is outlined and if you imagine blood flowing through the pulmonary valve Um, the the sound will follow the flow of blood and this radiates to the second intercostal space in the left sternal edge so that's where you should listen for the heart sounds and any murmur of stenosis there and the tricuspid valve is outlined here and the heart sounds of the tricuspid valve radiate to the fifth intercostal space at the left sternal edge and again a murmur of tricuspid stenosis will also radiate in this direction so here's where we listen for aortic regurgitation, so the fifth intercostal space at the lower left sternal edge and compare that to where we listen for the aortic um, heart sounds and any murmur of aortic stenosis so here's a diagram to illustrate that, here's the aortic valve outlined and if you can imagine blood flowing from the aorta back through the regurgitant aortic valve into the left ventricle the sound will follow the flow of blood and in this case aortic regurgitation will radiate to the fifth intercostal space at the lower left sternal edge. So murmurs are often difficult to hear and there are various techniques that we can use to extenuate them. Murmurs change with inspiration and the way this affects the murmurs can be remembered by the mnemonic ryle. Right-sided murmurs, be that of tricuspid or pulmonary origin are increased by inspiration and left-sided murmurs of mitral and aortic origin are increased by expiration. Murmurs also change with posture, and sitting forward brings the heart closer to the edge of the thorax, and this can extenuate a pericardial rub. Pericardial rub is heard at the beginnings or end of a pericardial fusion, and happens where the visceral and parietal pericardium are still in contact with one another, and they create a rubbing sound. However, in larger fusions, the layers are separated, and you might not hear a sound at all. The left lateral position extenuates murmurs of mitral origin. A valsour manoeuvre, which is forced expiration through a closed glottis, increases the intrathoracic pressure and can attenuate vital valve prolapse and any murmurs associated with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Squatting increases the venous return to the heart by compressing the deep veins in the legs and this increases the murmur of mitral regurgitation and aortic stenosis. Here I want to discuss a concept that's very important in cardiovascular examination, it explains pulsus paradoxus and also it explains our change in murmurs with inspiration. And This is to do with breathing and the level of venous return in the heart. So this is a cut diagram of the heart and here we see on the left hand side the superior vena cava and the inferior vena cava at the bottom of the heart there and we can also see very nicely the diaphragm in the thorax when you take a breath in there's a negative intrathoracic pressure and there's a relative positive abdominal pressure so when you take a breath in the negative intrathoracic pressure sucks venous blood from the inferior and superior vena cavae, and this increases flow through the right side of the heart therefore increases the intensity of right sided murmurs it also causes a stretch in the right atrium and this increases the heart rate. This is known as the Bainbridge reflex. So as the venous blood is drawn in the stretch receptors in the right atrium are activated and the heart rate quickens. So blood pulled from the superior vena cava and in turn the internal jugular vein results in a drop in the JVP. In Pulsus Paradoxus there's a drop in blood pressure as the compressed heart cannot compensate for the increase in venous return. So that completes our examination of the precordium and we'll move to the part of the examination where we'll examine things away and after the precordium. You should listen to the lung bases and this should perform part of the cardiovascular exam as well as the examination of the thorax. And you should examine the anterior thorax first with the patient lying at 45 degrees. Then you should sit them up and examine the posterior thorax. You should look for wheezes and this can be present in cardiac asthma you should listen for rails and these can be present in pulmonary edema. and you should also note the presence of any pleural effusions. and These are all signs of left ventricular failure. Then whilst the patient is sitting up, having listened to the back of their chest, you should have a look at the sacrum. Press on the bony parts of the sacrum and look for any dependent oedema. Then we'll move on to examination of the abdomen. You should feel for an abdominal aortic aneurysm and we'll go through how to do this in the gastroexamination podcast. You should also feel for hepatosplenomegaly as this can be present in right heart failure. Enlarged kidneys could be a sign of diabetes mellitus or amyloidosis and amyloidosis can cause problems with the heart as well. You might also feel enlarged kidneys in adult polycystic kidney disease and this is a risk factor for hypertension and is also associated with berry aneurysms in the brain. You should listen over the kidneys for the brewery of renal artery stenosis and also listen near the umbilicus for an arterial brewery that may suggest an atheromatous or aneurysmal aorta. Also listen over the femoral vessels for a pistol shot sound heard in high output states particularly aortic regurgitation. You should also examine the femoral regions for any scars around the femoral artery or vein that may indicate any percutaneous techniques such as percutaneous coronary intervention after examination of the abdomen we want to feel for the peripheral pulses you've already done the upper limb peripheral pulses we did the radial and we did the brachial and we also felt the central pulse of the carotid peripheral pulses you want to examine the femoral, the popliteal the dorsalis pedis and the posterior tibial pulses so here's where to find the femoral artery the femoral artery is medial to the sartorius muscle and enters the femoral triangle at the mid inguinal point and this is halfway from the anterior superior iliac spine to the pubic symphysis. I should note that it's not the midpoint of the inguinal ligament and the inguinal ligament runs from the anterior superior iliac spine to the pubic tubercle so it's the mid inguinal point rather than the midpoint of the inguinal ligament. So then we'll move down the leg to fill for the popliteal artery the popliteal artery lies in the popliteal fossa and it can be very difficult to fill and the best way to do it is with the patient lying flat with the knee slightly flexed. And there are two real methods to doing this. The first method is to um, dig into the fossa with your fingertips. And the second method, uh, you can use the flattened tips of one hand and use this as a sensing organ. And the pressure for this uh, to be applied into the fossa should be applied with the opposite hand so you press the limp hand into the popliteal fossa and try and feel with the limp hand you move down and feel for the dorsalis pedius which is a branch of the anterior tibial artery and this is found um, on the anterior surface of the foot between the first and the second toes and this is lateral to the tendon of extensa hallucis longus the posterior tibial pulse is felt at the ankle and this is posterior and inferior to the medial malleolus. Once you've felt the peripheral pulses examine them for uh, the lower limbs for any rashes or any signs of peripheral vascular disease. You may see well demarcated punched out ulcers in arterial disease you might also see any ulcers associated with diabetes. Also try to examine for oedema and edema related to a cardiovascular diagnosis is pitting in nature, and try to identify a level. So, is it uh, pedal edema, i.e., in the feet? Does it go up to the ankle, the mid-tibial region, or does it go uh, uh, below or above the knee? You may get edema all the way up to the thigh and indeed the abdomen. So that's the bulk of the examination done, and then we can think about things we want to do to complete our examination. You may want to go back and examine any areas that you've missed or examine any areas in more detail if you're unsure about what you've been hearing or feeling and you can also suggest any simple bedside tests such as fendoscopy if you didn't get a chance to do it during your examination or you can ask for an electrocardiogram. Remember there are two mnemonics that we can use for, to remember investigations and I'll refer you to our first podcast in, in uh, the clinical examination series. And Then you want to summarize your findings. So in summary we've given you a framework about the cardiovascular diagnosis and we've talked about the things to include and how to conduct the examination. We've also talked about the signs you should look for and we'll continue our systems-based approach to examination and later produce some podcasts on clinical presentations. So we'd really love you to help us improve these podcasts by rating them and leaving your comments on the website and thank you very much for listening.